0: I like the sound. 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 A ragbag podcast. A ragbag podcast. A ragbag podcast. I love a big podcast. On this episode of I Like The Sound, we're going to be talking about pop songs. I'll be investigating one hit single in particular, but I'd like to preface this in-depth analysis with a little theory I have about popular music. This isn't exclusively my theory. I presume lots of other people have said this before, but here's my own personal take on it. This isn't true of all pop songs by any means, but it's a recurring trend throughout the history of popular music that there's a certain type of pop song that appeals directly to small children. I'm talking preschool age kids, and these songs engage with the child's brain in the same way that nursery rhymes do. Sometimes it's done with wordplay, sometimes it's done by mentioning things that young children like, like, cars, animals, dancing and so on. Sometimes it's done by connecting with the child in a way that makes sense to them. Like there's a lot of songs that use counting numbers or listing the days of the week or listing body parts. There's lots of songs listing days of the week and listing body parts, aren't there, if you think about it. A classic example is one of the defining hit singles of the 1950s, Rock Around the Clock by Bill Haley and the Comets. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock around the Now, this was not a song that was primarily designed to appeal to four-year-old kids. But the genius of it is you can play it to a four-year-old child and they'll connect with it in the same way that they connect with Jack and Jill Went Up the Hill. There are countless other examples too. Let's move on to the 60s and consider the most successful band of that era, the Beatles. I remember being at primary school singing Yellow Submarine and Octopus's Garden and Obla ob la Da. I didn't actually know who wrote these songs. I didn't even know that they were pop songs. I just thought they were fun songs that we sang at school. Even the weirder and more drug-influenced tunes the Beatles produced have that childlike appeal too. Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, I Am the Walrus. Again, these songs weren't primarily written with young children in mind, but they appeal directly to young children. If you're an adult listening to them, part of their appeal is that they connect with the child within you. So, in a way, these classic songs do have infants as their primary focus. If you're an adult, they appeal to your inner child, and if you're an actual child, they clearly appeal to you too. I guess what I'm trying to say is that the secret to universal appeal and universal success from a commercial point of view is to write songs that appeal to young kids. There are plenty of examples from the 70s and 80s too, not least of all from one of the most commercially successful bands of all time, Queen. Again, I became familiar with a lot of Queen songs as a very young child before I really understood what pop music was. Bicycle Race, We Are The Champions, Radio Gaga. Songs with such infantile lyrics that they actually could have been written by a three-year-old. Or, at the very least, you could argue, they lack the depth and emotional intelligence of Lennon and McCartney. As you may have gathered, I never liked Queen as a band. I found them really irritating. I realise they're accomplished musicians, but to me they've always sounded like a novelty act. But clearly their millions of followers would disagree, and I think in some way this proves my point about appealing directly to children being the key to having hit songs. I can name countless great artists with huge legions of fans who nonetheless never had a UK number one single. Bob Dylan, Patti Smith, PJ Harvey, Nick Cave, Tom Waits, to name just a handful they all have one thing in common. Their songs don't appeal to children. Again, as far as chart toppers go, there's always a few notable exceptions. The Manic Street Preachers had a UK number one hit with a song about the Spanish Civil War. It was called If You Tolerate This, Your Children Will Be Next. The title may mention the word children, but I don't think there were many three-year-olds humming it in the nursery playground. Incidentally, if You Tolerate This, Your Children Will Be Next, is the UK number one single with the longest title, excluding brackets. There's a fun fact for you. I'd have guessed that Itsy Bitsy Teeny Weenie Yellow Polka Dot Bikini by Bomb Ballerina. Apparently, the Manics title is slightly longer. Anyway, I suppose this is my way of getting round to the actual subjects of this episode. I am going to be spending the next 20 minutes talking about Itsy Bitsy Teeny Weenie Yellow Polka Dot Bikini. Not because I like the song. I don't like it. Let's get that out of the way. (laughs) I'm not a fan of the song. You may be, for all I know, you may not have heard it, or you may have heard it and deliberately forgotten. Allow me to refresh your memory. Itsy Bitsy, Teeny Weeny, Yellow Polka Dot Bikini doesn't have a great deal in common with the songs that I've been talking about so far. You know, the Beatles, the Queen, Rock Around the Clock, etc. These are songs that appeal directly to young children, but they also encompass a much wider audience. Itsy Bitsy, Teeny Weeny belongs to an entirely different category of pop song. It's a song that only appeals to young children and irritates everyone else. This genre is still very much alive and kicking. Big shout out to all the parents of toddlers at this moment in time. How many times have they played Baby Shark today? A hundred? The media in which the songs are consumed have changed somewhat. Itsy Bitsy Teeny Weenie was released in 1990, a good few years before YouTube. If you wanted to hear it, you had to buy the record. Imagine if the only way you could hear the song Baby Shark was to purchase a 7-inch vinyl. I'm sure it would have sold very well, by the way. But it's an interesting niche market within pop music. The 1990s saw number one hit singles for Mr Blobby and The Teletubbies. Both of these hit songs were designed to appeal to people who were too young to purchase the records themselves. Clearly, the songs became such big hits because parents were buying them for their children, despite the fact that, presumably, they personally found those songs extremely annoying. It was love for their children that drove these parents to willingly part with their own money for the experience of listening to, let's face it, some extremely annoying songs over and over and over and over again. Love really does make people do some strange things, doesn't it? And there's something kind of wonderful about that, isn't there? As annoying as these songs are, it's love that keeps the whole thing going. You can't really say that about any other genre of music. You couldn't say that about cool music anyway. Why are you buying that record? Well, it's got got a good bass line, like, you know, it's got a good beat, it's got a nice vocal, it's kind of cool. That's all well and good. But I'm buying the new single by the Tweenies. Not because it sounds good, but because of love. There's a nice kind of purity to this financial exchange, you know what I mean? But this isn't the reason why I've chosen to speak to you about Bomb Ballerina's Itsy Bitsy teeny Weenie Yellow Polka Dot Bikini today. Those other songs I mentioned, the Teletubbies and the Tweenie songs, as much as you may dislike them, there is a very obvious reason why these records exist. Children like them and their parents are willing to pay money for them? Welcome to the music industry, this is how we do things. But to me, there isn't a particularly clear reason as to why Itsy Bitsy existed in the first place. You could say it existed purely as a money-making exercise. But if you look at the story behind the song, I'm not sure that's what it was. In truth, I don't know why this song exists. I actually have a lot of unanswered questions about it. She was afraid to she could be. she was afraid to come out of the locker she was afraid that somebody would see Two, three, four, tell people you are. there are countless songs with their own mythology surrounding them Their authors making questionable claims as to the origins of their work it's all part of rock and roll as it turns out this is one of those songs seriously i could write a whole book about this it's absolutely fascinating. Let's consider the evidence. Seen as no one has yet seen fit to write a book on this subject, I am referring to the Wikipedia page because it gives us a nice little potted history of the song. So it's a cover of an American novelty song originally released by Brian Hyland. You actually get a very comprehensive history of the song on the Wikipedia page. I know all sorts of facts about this song now. This intrigued me. None other than Jimi Hendrix played a brief cover of the song on the live recording Mr. Pitiful, released in 1981 in Germany only. That's a pretty obscure release as these things go. That's got to be worth something, right? An original copy of that German-only release? Wonder what it sounds like. I think my favourite fact about the song is this. The song was featured in the 1961 Billy Wilder film comedy One, Two, Three. In a key scene, the character Otto, suspected of being a spy, is being tortured by the East German police, playing the song to him repetitively, eventually with the record off-centre to create a weird howling variation of pitch. The actual recording was re-released in 1962 to capitalise on the film's success, but it did not reach out. That's opportunism at its best, isn't it? The Billy Wilder film was clearly making fun of the song, using it as a torture technique, no less. <laughs> but they were like, "Yeah, let's just release the song off the back of this movie. What's the worst that could happen? Any publicity and all that." So let's take a look at the Bomballerina version of the song. In 1990, a version was released by Bomballerina titled "Itsy Bitsy Teeny Weeny Yellow Polka Dot Bikini," which featured. Timmy Mallet, star of Wackaday, a popular UK children's television show of the time. So this is worth noting at this point, the vocalist on the song was not a professional singer. He was a children's TV presenter with no previous history as a recording artist. This in itself isn't particularly unusual. It was very common at the time for TV stars to have a go at recording a single and people would buy it off the back of that person's fame. Loads and loads of TV actors were giving it a go. Some more successful than others. Off the top of my head, the only really successful one I can think of is Kylie Minogue, who quickly became better known as a singer than as an actor. But Kylie fitted that part well. She looked and sounded like a pop star. Timmy Mallet did not. He's a very strange choice of vocalist for this single, and I'll tell you my reasons for thinking that in a minute. First of all, you may be wondering who Timmy Mallet is. What was his thing? Well, his thing was he was a very loud, boisterous character dressed in dazzlingly bright coloured clothes who carried this big foam hammer around with him, and he used to hit kids over the head with it. They used to play this game called Mallet's Mallet. I can't remember the rules of the game, but it very much involved children being hit over the head with this giant foam hammer. So that's the kind of character we're dealing with here. It's Wackaday! 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 Hello, Wide Awakens! It's here! It's brilliant! It's the summer holidays! And what's the best thing about the summer holidays? It is, of course, Wackaday on your telly every single day for an hour a day, which is utterly, 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 utterly brilliant. Now, all your favourite usual stuff, we've got Mallet's Mallet coming on. Da-da-da! Ouch! And you may be wondering, yeah, he sounds interesting. I wonder what he's like in real life. I wonder what his real name is. Well, here's the first thing you should know. Timmy Mallet's real name is Timmy Mallet. You see what they've done here? They've built this whole persona around the fact that Mallet is the guy's actual surname... In answer to your question, what is he like in real life? Well, I'll refer you on to Timmy Mallet's appearance on the reality TV show I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here a few years back. If his performance on that show was anything to go by, the larger-than-life character who appeared on children's TV in the 80s and 90s, that's basically him. That's what he is like all the time. (laughs) So that's who Timmy Mallet is. He's a very strange man. I'm sure he won't mind me saying this if he's in the business of Googling himself and discovers this show. I'm sure he'll take this as a compliment in some way. And that's kind of how it's meant. I don't mean to insult the guy. He's very eccentric. Let's put it that way. Imagine being one of the customer service agents who have to deal with him on a regular basis, though, eh? Behind the counter of the petrol station or something. Can I help you, Mr Mallet? Utterly brilliant. (laughs) Any fuel today, Mr Mallet? Please don't hit me over the head with that thing. I don't know where it's been. I hope it's had a good wash since the 1980s. It's made contact with a lot of children's heads. I just hope you checked every single one of them for lice. God knows what that thing's got living in it now. Let's continue with this Wikipedia entry. Mallet told the British pop magazine Smash Hits that the composer of popular theatre musicals, Andrew Lloyd Webber, had come up with the idea for making the single and had asked Mallet to sing on it. Now, this is all verifiable information. Andrew Lloyd Webber was indeed the producer of this record. The band was named Bomb Ballerina after one of the characters from the musical Cats. And obviously, Mallet ended up being the vocalist on it, so this is all true. I'm just finding it hard to get my head around the idea that Andrew Lloyd Webber, a man with a vast experience of working with professional singers and presumably a huge address book containing some of the greatest vocalists in the country, who he could call on at any time. Why did Andrew Lloyd Webber choose to approach this guy? Utterly, 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 utterly brilliant! It makes absolutely no sense. My assumption is that Mallet's rewritten history here a little... Andrew Lloyd Webber was only the executive producer of the record. The actual producer was Nigel Wright, who has an extensive CV which includes producing a lot of successful pop music, including, for example, Robson and Jerome, a pair of TV actors with no previous recording experience, and Paul Potts, a TV talent show winner. So it would make sense that Lloyd Webber was happy to hand over the responsibility for selecting the vocalist to Nigel Wright, but it sounds better when Mallet's being interviewed by Smash Hits magazine to say Andrew Lloyd Webber approached him. Mallet's next tale, taken from the same interview, is an even bolder claim. The day after recording the song, Mallet took a copy of it on a tour of European clubs where he was making personal appearances and asked the club's DJs to play the song, Raising Public Awareness of the Record. (laughs) This is reported as fact on the Wikipedia page, so it's part of the song's history now. But it's obviously not true. European clubs, which ones? Mallet wasn't known outside of the UK. There weren't any French or German kids sitting down to watch Wackaday on a Saturday morning. It would have been incomprehensible to them. It was barely comprehensible to the British audience. And even if there were European children watching Wackaday... They weren't going out to nightclubs in the evening. If anyone played itsy-bitsy, teeny-weeny, yellow polka-dot bikini in a nightclub, it would clear the dance floor faster than a fire alarm. It may have been the case that Mallet went on a tour of European holiday camps entertaining the British holidaymakers and their kids. If that's the case, it's plausible that he played the record for them. Maybe that's what happened. Or maybe he just made the whole thing up. I don't know. It's a mystery. So, let's recap. We have a cheesy pop record with a kids' TV presenter on vocals, produced by famous songwriter Andrew Lloyd Webber for some reason. The question remains, why has Andrew Lloyd Webber chosen to do this? And why hasn't he used one of his own songs? This is one of the reasons why I don't think this is a money-making exercise. If Andrew Lloyd Webber wanted to make loads of money from this venture, surely he'd have written the song himself. It's the sort of thing he could rattle off in his sleep. And that's where the money is in pop music. The songwriter really cleans up. If you want an example of that, look no further than the guy who wrote Itsy Bitsy Teeny Weeny Yellow Polka Dot Bikini. The song's co-author, Paul Vance, earned several million dollars from the song from 1960 until his own death in 2022, describing it as a money machine. And he's just the co-author of the song. Presumably the other songwriter, Lee Pockris, made several million dollars too. What I'm saying is, why record a cover version when you don't need to, when you yourself clearly have the capacity to write a hit record, unless money is not your motivating factor. And if you're going to choose a song to cover, why choose that one? This, in its own way, is the biggest mystery of them all. Itsy Bitsy Teeny Weeny Yellow Polka Dot Bikini is a song very much of its time, born from a very 1950s attitude to modesty and the exposure of female flesh. The song describes a girl who goes out swimming in a revealing swimsuit and then experiences a fear of being seen wearing it. There's a new culture of freedom and permissiveness emerging, which the girl in the song has bought into by wearing the bikini. But at the same time, the repressive culture of 1950s America has created a dichotomy in her mind. I can imagine listening to the song at that time and being able to relate to that dichotomy in some way. It's still an annoying song, but at least at its time of writing, it had some societal relevance. By the year 1990 the song had almost no societal relevance whatsoever. Young people listening to it, myself included, couldn't make a great deal of sense of the thing. Why was she afraid to get out of the water? Because of the bikini? What's wrong with the bikini? Wear something else if you don't like it. It's a free country. So it's a very odd choice of song, a very odd choice of vocalists, and we still don't have any real clue as to why this song exists. The other reason I don't think it's a money-making venture is a simple fact that Andrew Lloyd Webber was, and is, an extremely wealthy individual. The Sunday Times Rich List of 2019 saw him ranked the richest musician in the UK, overtaking Paul McCartney with a fortune of £820 million. He didn't need the money. He had nothing to gain from the venture apart from a few extra thousand pounds on top of the hundreds of millions he already had. But weirdly, he had a lot to lose. I don't know very much about Andrew Lloyd Webber, I can't claim to be a fan of his music, but I assume that he wanted to be taken seriously as an artist. And doing something like this, releasing a cover version of a very outdated American song with a TV presenter on lead vocals completely undermines his credibility. This... I like it. Oh, yeah. ...completely undermines the credibility of all concerned. Oh, yeah. On top of all of that, there's another spanner in the works. We've talked about these couple of half-truths, Timmy Mallett told Smash Hits magazine, all forgivable stuff, you could say, par for the course when you're promoting something, particularly something as flimsy as this particular record. You're almost obliged to make it sound bigger and better than it actually is. It's all part of the job. But then, there's this. In November 2008... "'School teacher and former singer Everton Barnes "'claimed that he was the real singer on the record, "'as Mallet had been unable to hit the right notes and sang flat. "'Wow! (laughs) Ha ha! I don't know whether this man's claim is true or not. "'If it's not true, it's a very strange thing to have said. "'If it is true, well, this certainly wouldn't be the first time this has happened.' Coincidentally, the year 1990, when Itsy Bitsy was released, was the very same year the band Milli Vanilli were revealed to be using someone else's vocals on their records. That was a huge scandal at the time, which still gets talked about today. Lots of podcasts have covered that subject. I don't know if any podcast apart from this one has taken the time to cover the Itsy Bitsy scandal. But I suppose it wasn't really a scandal, the guy made the claims 18 years after the record came out, roughly 17 and a half years since everyone else had forgotten the track had existed in the first place. If this claim is true though, what does this tell us about Andrew Lloyd Webber? Presumably he'll have known about this use of Everton Barnes as an uncredited replacement vocalist for Mallet, The public reaction to the Milli Vanilli scandal tells you everything you need to know about how music fans feel about being tricked in this way. You could even argue it's a form of consumer fraud and runs in direct contravention of the Trades Description Act in the UK. In other words, if these claims are indeed correct, that would make Andrew Lloyd Webber both a liar and a criminal. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that Andrew Lloyd Webber is a fraud. After all, why would he take such a huge risk for one very silly disposable pop record? It makes no sense. The next quotation sounds like it might get to the heart of this matter, although I'd say that this is yet another questionable claim. Lloyd Webber later admitted that he had produced the song because his wife had bet him that as a composer of musical theatre, he would not be able to make a pop song that was a big hit. Hang on, so he did it for a bet with his wife. It still doesn't make any sense. Why would Lloyd Webber care so much about his wife's claim that he could never produce a hit song? The guy's richer than Paul McCartney. Also, this story of his makes absolutely no sense whatsoever when you consider the fact that he'd already had a huge pop record the previous year. Michael Ball's version of Andrew Lloyd Webber's Love Changes Everything, produced by Lloyd Webber himself, reached number two in the UK charts in 1989. So his wife wouldn't have said that, would she? Unless this bet of theirs specifically stated that Lloyd Webber was incapable of getting a number one hit record... Could this be true? I am reading between the lines here for sure, but is it possible that Andrew Lloyd Webber was so deeply insecure that having one of his songs reach number two in the UK charts instead of number one was a genuine blow to his ego? Maybe it was, or maybe he was genuinely enraged by the fact that Love Changes Everything was kept off the top spot by none other than Jason Donovan's Too Many Broken Hearts. Jason Donovan, another TV actor who sidestepped his way into pop music and did pretty well for himself off the back of it. And so... Lloyd Webber had to do something about it. He had to enlist the help of a music producer with a strong track record of making number ones and he had to say to him Nigel, I need a number one hit. Find me the catchiest song in the world. It doesn't have to be good or socially relevant or everything. It just needs to be really, really catchy. And then find me a famous TV star to sing it. Someone who's guaranteed to be widely known by young kids. Actually, let's use a Kids TV presenter. Doesn't matter which one. Whoever is willing to do it. Don't worry if he can't sing. We'll get a session vocalist in. Mum's the word and all that. The bottom line is this song needs to be a number one hit. It needs to have my name on it. So off you go and produce this thing. Call me an executive producer, whatever. Just get me a hit. (laughs) you like that impression of uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber? It's it's uncanny, isn't it? (laughs) Now, I'm not saying it did happen like that. But for me, this is the only version of the story that makes sense. A fabulously wealthy and yet deeply insecure man pays for and gets what he wants. And he did get what he wanted. If indeed there was a bet that took place between Lloyd Webber and his wife, he won the bet. The song was a number one hit. So I suppose congratulations are in order. By the way, I hope I haven't given you the impression that children's songs are all terrible things. That's not the way that I feel at all. Children's songs are an art form in their own right, or at least they are when they're done properly. There are some genuinely great children's songs. Listen to the Encanto soundtrack. Who doesn't love the Encanto soundtrack? Come on. Look at Sesame Street, you know. Look at the Duck Song by Bryant Oden. Classic. I actually reached out to Bryant recently and invited him onto the podcast so that we could talk about the Duck Song. He declined because he's busy doing other things, but he seems like a very nice guy. Shout out to him. And just to show that I'm not against this sort of thing, let's finish off this episode of I Like the Sound with one of the great children's pop songs, It's Raining Tacos by Parry Grip. It's Raining Tacos I Like the Sound was written, presented and produced by myself, Frank Burton. I'm the author of several books, which you should definitely investigate as soon as possible. For more information about me and my work, please visit frankburton.co.uk. My other podcast is called Ragbag Presents. Also available is the four-part podcast series I made with David Ivar, celebrating 20 years of the band Herman Dune. It's called Not On Top and it's wonderful. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at ragbag Presents. Get in touch. Let us know what you like the sound of. I will see you soon.